I went to a Christian school and I know more about the way babies are made than you. Not, I know how they're made. It's P and the V. But what I'm saying is I don't understand how they breathe underwater without gills. Welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host Katie. And today we are talking about the murder of Lacey Peterson. And that was done by Fat Ben Affleck, right? Yeah, Scott Peterson. Ah, uh, Yes. He does kind of look like a fat Ben Affleck, but that's fat Ben Affleck now. He was already fat. Modern Ben Affleck. We're not here to fat shame anyone. <laughs> and uh, where'd you do your research, Katie? The book for this one was A Deadly Game by Catherine Cryer, and then I also read Amber Fry's book, which was called Witness, I think, and I watched the A&E series they did about it called The Murder of Lacey Peterson. Okay. Amber Fry was his side piece? or Mistress. Wait, his mistress? Yes. Okay. She did not know that, though. We'll get into that another another episode. Oh, wait, where where actually are we in the world for this one? This one's in Modesto, California. Oh, good old Modesto. So another outside the four corners, but that's okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, this one was recommended by my coworker, Jen. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? December 24th, 2002 began as a normal day for Scott and Lacey Peterson. Scott awoke around 8 a.m. and found Lacey eating a bowl of cereal later explaining she had to eat as soon as she woke up or she would get sick because she was eight and a half months pregnant. Did he say what kind of cereal? Something from Trader Joe's, one of the puffin ones. Ugh. Puffin cereal? It's gotta be yeah. Lucky Charms. You're eight months pregnant, you gotta eat the cereal that you want. And this lucky, none of this Trader Joe's stuff. Well, I mean, it's probably pretty good cereal still. My dad used to eat it. JoJo's tastes like garbage. You know, it's the best cereal though. Honey Nut Cheerios, maybe? Multigrain Cheerios. What what do you put on them? Just milk. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fucking psycho. I just you were literally the only one whose mother let them pour sugar on their Cheerios. Yeah, Cheerios are good either way. No, like, not, I have never once been I like, "Hey, that... mom, can I pour sugar into this bowl of milk with Why my didn't you just healthy get... breakfast?" Frosted Cheerios. Frosted Cheerios are gross, dude. You they put strawberries not. and a bit of sugar into your Cheerios. Okay. Maybe some honey. Conversation for another Home time. school. <laughs> at 8.40, someone, who most assume to be Lacey, got onto the computer and looked at two websites. One of a sunflower umbrella stand and another of a scarf. It's assumed to be Lacey because her favorite flower were sunflowers. What sparks doubt in some minds is the fact that the scarf was looked at at 8.44, and at 8.45, someone, assumed to be Scott now, logged into his email. What if it was Lacey logging into his email to uh, do the old spy There was one email opened and not replied. They got off the computer. I bet Scott just saw that the computer was open. It was like, oh, I'm going to check my email real quick. In the 30 seconds that she closed her browser and stood up, and then he had to get on and log on before. Interesting. He yeah, because this was back before high-speed internet, right? It was 2002, yeah. So. DSL. I mean, it's between 844 and 845. I think it would have been relatively difficult to trade out an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant woman, and then get logged into your email. Maybe he just rolled her out of the way real quick and had another... Maybe he stood up to do it. He just pushed her out of the way. Whee! Bye, Lacey. To to just check an email? I think it was, like, a package that had shipped or something. You think he he was just, like, making it look like he searched for something? Maybe he was trying to get a gift for Lacey? It's like, fuck, I had a tarp ordered. supposed to be here this morning. Yeah, I don't... I mean, I'm not sure what he was doing i don't know if he was that smart or if it was even him it was him i'm going to be i tried to not write this 
super biased against him, but it's really Hard difficult to, yeah. to make him look even slightly innocent. They both went about their morning, and as Scott prepared to leave the house at 9.30, Lacey was planning on making cookies, mopping the floor, and taking their dog, Mackenzie, for a walk in the Dry Creek area of East La Loma Park. What kind of dog was Mackenzie? Golden Retriever. She's adorable. There's one picture of that dog, huh? Yeah, she's a good-looking dog. It's a he. Mackenzie he. is a boy. What? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. All right, throwing us for a loop. Wow, yeah, threw, threw me for a loop, but okay. Call him Mac for short. I get it. Mac dog. And Mackenzie was actually a gift from Lacey to Scott when they first started dating. Nice. That's a good gift. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever perspective lady someday gets Rory, he wants a puppy. Scott reported Lacey was watching her favorite TV show, Martha Stewart, and she was talking about what to do with Meringue. Later, copies of the episode from that morning showed Meringue mentioned at 9.48 a.m., meaning Scott left closer to 10 a.m. Neighbors report they saw Scott around 9.30 loading something heavy into the back of his truck, but he waved and seemed his happy, normal self. Turned out, he was loading three large stand-up umbrellas wrapped in tarps into the bed. Is that what he was actually loading? Like, he loaded them up? He did load those, yes. Okay. So, I don't know if he loaded anything else, but those were in the bed of his truck. Interesting. I think it's also interesting to note that he has a like an 03-ish crew cab short bed F-150 with a big work box in the back. So, there's not a lot of room in the bed of his truck. Unless the work box doesn't go all the way to the floor. True. But it's not, it's not one of those ones that like hangs over the side. It's one of those just square ones that sits in and has an mm. opening top. Interesting. I'll just say they did tests and you could fit a body in the work in the toolbox. That's what you're saying, I think, right? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, you could. You just brought up the truck. <laughs> you just wanted to talk about the truck. No, and the fact that the, oh, with the toolbox in it, the bed doesn't have much room in it. Okay. That was my point. So wait, were the umbrellas like sticking out of the back of the truck or do we know that? I don't think so. Interesting. So they're like four foot umbrellas? They weren't too big. Scott went to his work warehouse for a few hours before hooking up his newly purchased boat and taking it to Berkeley Marina, which is in the San Francisco Bay. The boat was parked inside the rolling door of the warehouse, and Scott backed his truck up to hitch the trailer. Many like to point out that Scott was not able to back his truck in and close the door, and he had to do everything in quote-unquote broad daylight. His warehouse was surrounded by a few others, but it was a very quiet area and also Christmas Eve, so no one was around. He just couldn't get the angle right to back in, or? It just wasn't a big enough workshop to fit a truck and a boat. Okay. After arriving at Berkeley Marina, Scott took his boat to a small island called Brooks Island. He recalls it being covered in trash and a no-landing sign staked into the ground, which is confirmed later. The water is relatively shallow in this area, so he fishes for a short time before it begins to rain and he decides to head back to the dock. He loaded the boat and headed back to Modesto and noticed that a few marina employees and visitors found it funny he had such a hard time getting his trailer back down the ramp to load the boat. Didn't he just get the boat, right? Yeah, a few days prior. He was the only one that knew about the purchase of the boat, too. Oh, so... Supposedly Lacey knew. Oh, okay. Supposedly. There's a lot of things that he said Lacey knew. Did you see that trailer, though? Those tires on that thing are like eight inches in diameter. Yeah. They're little tiny things. I'm sure it's it's touchy, but... I mean, that boat, I could probably back that trailer up. Yeah, I mean, also, you can launch that little boat by hand if you want. Just carry it down in there and throw it. Yeah. On the drive back to the warehouse, he called Lacey at home and on her cell phone, but received no answer and instead left voicemails on both. He was supposed to pick up a fruit basket for one of Lacey's family members, but wasn't going to get there by the 3 o'clock deadline, so he told Lacey, quote, Hey beautiful, I just left a message at home. Uh, it's 2.15. 
I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Vela Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love ya. Bye. Stopped at a gas station and purchased $13 of gas for his truck. Now, how much is $13 worth of gas? In 2002? Then? Yeah. Gas prices in 2002, I think, were just beginning to hit a high point. Current money? It's It was equivalent to a, it says $1.36 a gallon. <sighs> Cheap. But $13 worth of gas in a truck really isn't a hugely significant amount. It, it, that's 10 gallons if uh, it's $1.30 per gallon. Was that the price in Modesto, California? Because oh. it varies across the entire country. Yeah. He just drives 60 miles. Yeah, see, that's the thing. That one... He made like a 120-mile round trip, and 13... he only got $13 worth of gas. That's not that. It gave him enough to prove that he was in the area. Okay. Makes sense. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was just some proof. He probably already had gas in his truck. Scott says he arrived home between 4.30 and 4.45. Looking at the time he left the marina, he more than likely arrived home closer to 5. Time of 4.30 would have meant he drove 51 miles to the warehouse, unloaded the boat, and drove home in 53 minutes. He would have to have driven roughly 80 miles an hour towing a boat for this to be possible. Well, it is a Ford, so, you know, maybe we know that he couldn't go 80 miles an hour towing a boat. It's a little boat. <laughs> it is a little boat. But if he can't really back it in... With a trailer, I'm assuming he's not going 80 miles an hour with a boat on his trailer. That's true. Plus those little tires, man. I don't think that thing's rated. <laughs> those for are fucking, tiny tires. tiny. I don't understand it. First bounce. Yeah, dude, that boat's gone. Flipped over. When he arrived at their home, he walked through their back gate and found their dog Mackenzie dragging his leash around the backyard. He saw the mop bucket he had prepared for Lacey and dumped it out so Mackenzie and their cat would not get into it. Walking inside, he noticed Lacey was not there, despite her car being there, and assumed that she had gone to her parents' house early. He ate some leftover pizza, put his clothes in the wash, and took a shower. At 5.15, Scott called Lacey's mother, Sharon Rocha, and asked if Lacey was there. She wasn't, so Sharon told him to call around to her friends and see if she was with them. Scott hangs up and calls back only two minutes later, telling Sharon no one had seen her. By now, Sharon had told Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, what was happening, and he called police at 5.47. They headed out to Isla Loma to begin the search. How did the parents feel about Scott Peterson at this point? Were they always kind of like friendly with him? Did they always find him kind of a turd or what? No, everyone loved Scott. Scott called Sharon mom. Oh, interesting. They were all incredibly close. So oh, Okay. Why did he make Lacey a mop bucket and didn't just mop himself? She's he, pregnant. Yeah, she can't carry a mop bucket. She shouldn't be mopping either. I mean, no, she shouldn't be. Mop yourself, Scott. But she wanted to mop. Lacey was not the type to be told, no, you can't do that. Normally, missing persons don't spark such a large police presence so soon after the initial report. In Lacey's case, the immediate concern was that she was eight months pregnant and may have fallen or somehow injured herself while walking the dog. As the family began to search East La Loma, officers went to the Peterson home to check for any signs of a struggle or forced entry. Everything seemed normal, nothing was missing, but officers did notice the phone book open to an advertisement for a criminal defense attorney on the kitchen counter. So, like, he was trying to make sure he had all his bases covered? That's what they thought, yes, originally. But, see, he'd done all the other planning and all the other shit we're going to get into that he had previously looked up, and then after the fact, he's like, oh, oh, man, I, I don't have an attorney if I do get caught. I think he just got scared he was going to get caught, so he decided to have a backup plan. He probably just wrote down on a piece of paper just so he would have it with him in case he did get arrested. Scott was the first one questioned as he was the last one to see Lacey. 
Detective Albert Kinney was assigned the case and arrived at the Peterson home at 9.54 and asked Scott about his alibi. He provided them a receipt from the marina that was time-stamped 12.54. He wasn't really able to tell them exactly what he was fishing for or what bait he had used. Looking through Scott's truck, Brocchini noticed the umbrellas wrapped in the tarp and a boat cover crumpled up in the bed. When Brocchini opened the truck's door to look inside, he accidentally bumped into Lacey's Land Rover parked next to it. Scott became noticeably irritated and quickly got a glove to put between the doors so the Land Rover's paint wouldn't chip. Scott was obviously worried about his material possessions. But, I mean, I I would be pretty upset if some guy came to my house and opened the door real hard and chipped one of my car's paint. Especially if, if it was a cop, you'd be so mad. Especially yeah. if your wife, who's eight months pregnant, is missing. Yeah. <laughs> there there are stages there. there are stages to that, though. Like, if you don't think that anything's wrong and that Lacey can take care of herself, there's She's, that bit of worry that can present itself as uh, anxiety about things in your He was not anxious area. in any other way except for about his land, precious Land Rover. That's the whole I'm not trying to defend the guy. I'm just saying it's understandable why you would take one thing to focus on when you're upset. It happens. Inside Lacey's Land Rover, Brocchini found her cell phone, which was dead and had been for the entire day. Sharon later mentioned that Lacey hardly ever carried her cell phone or had it on, making some question why Scott had left her a voicemail if he knew she would not hear it. Was the cell phone just for if she was pregnant and needed to call someone, or if she was about to give birth and needed to call someone? It wasn't necessarily about communication every with every person. She used a house phone for that, like everybody else did in 2002. I don't... If it was just for her pregnancy, I think it would have been charged and on and... I guess you're probably right. Because she was eight and a half months, so there was, realistically, she could have gone into labor at any point. She was due February 10th, so she still had a couple weeks to go, but things happened. She could have gone to labor at any time and needed her cell phone, so why would it be dead sitting in her car? Interesting. Well, like Rory said, in 2002, a lot of people weren't, like, didn't see it as a necessity. They're like, I've got a landline. What do I need this thing for? And then they just leave it there. And there weren't cool games on it, really, aside from Snake. When the neighborhood was canvassed, neighbors did report seeing Mackenzie running around trailing his leash, but one of them had put him in the Peterson's backyard at 10.18 that morning. They left a leash on him? Yeah, she just threw him in, and I guess he got out often, so she figured that oh, Mac. she just put him back and walk away. Yeah. The Petersons across the street neighbors told officers that Scott had been there around 5.20 asking if they'd seen Lacey, as he'd been golfing all day and now couldn't find her. Why wouldn't you... If you're going to give the cops one story and you know you're going to be in trouble, you got to give everyone the same story, right? Yeah. Why, what's, is there any reason why he would switch up his story? I think he just fucked up. When officers questioned Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepfather, on what Scott had been doing all day, Ron also said that Scott had been golfing. Noticing the discrepancy, officers decided to casually mention golf around him to gauge his reaction. He seemed slightly concerned, but said that it had been too cold to golf, so he went fishing instead. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Yeah, they were like... How do you casually bring something like that, just that up? Like that. So on the 23rd, Scott and Lacey had gone to get Scott's haircut at Lacey's sister's work, and he also mentioned there that he was going golfing the next day. So, so far he has three people that he said he was going golfing to, and now he's trying to change his story because he obviously didn't go golfing i mean what's too cold to golf in california what is too cold to golf but not to go out in the middle of the fucking ocean yeah the ocean's always cold guys he raised eyebrows again when after his truck was searched he approached sharon and said quote you know if they find blood anywhere that doesn't mean anything i'm a sportsman just look at my hands i could drop blood anywhere it's a weird thing to say 
Because he's just always bringing home dead animals, he's saying, or what? Like No, that he cuts his hands, and he could bleed anywhere. I have blood... I have blood packs with my friends. We're sportsmen. We can drop blood anywhere. Around 11, Brokini took Scott to his warehouse to look around. When they walked in, Scott explained that there was no electricity in the building, so they'd have to search by flashlight. In the office area, Brokini found a fax that had come through around 2.30 that afternoon. Apparently, he either ignored or just didn't realize that the building had to have electricity to have a working fax machine, and Scott was lying. That is a little weird. Pick up a fax and it's got a timestamp on it from like a few hours earlier. Well, you know, it's 2002. They're still, they still use fax. It's not like if you were a caveman and you're walking along searching by fire and you see a fax, then you're going to be like, oh, what, what, is, what is this electricity? Right? Yeah, but if you say, no, there's no electricity to this building, how are you going to get a fax? Yeah, you're going to have to look only with your flashlights. I wonder if he had something hidden there in basic plain sight. Huh. That's what I'm they assume. I'm going to say Brokini wasn't the smartest, uh, sharpest tool in the shed. I don't know. I mean, he solved the whole case, so I would say he probably is pretty smart. Scott's first official interview at the police station began around midnight. He walked Detective Brokini through his morning before leaving to go fishing. At one point, Lacey's half-sister called Scott's cell phone and he answered. He asked nothing about the search or for any updates on Lacey. Only seven hours in, he already seemed uninterested or possibly knew that the search was fruitless and she wouldn't be found there. When they asked about any affairs or marriage trouble, Scott said there was none of either. Basically, everyone that knew the couple reported their relationship was close to perfect. Seemingly out of the blue, Scott asked Brokini if there were going to be any grief counselors brought in for the family as he thought they'd need them. At the end of the interview, Scott told Brokini he'd be willing to take a polygraph the very next day. Being Christmas, right? Next day being Christmas. It was technically already Christmas, oh, so okay. yeah. The uh, grief counselor thing, wouldn't that like only be something that you would ask to have brought in if... Someone was dead? Someone was dead. Grief was evident. Or like a week, a couple weeks into a missing person case and you can assume that they're dead. Yeah, not the hours later, literally. Yeah. Can I get a grief counselor in here? I'm really having a hard time with my wife's death. I mean, disappearance. Christmas Day began with more neighborhood canvassing. The Petersons across the street neighbors reported that Lacey normally opened the blinds the moment she woke up, but they'd remained closed the entire day on the 24th. They also noted that Scott had backed into the driveway, something he rarely, if at all, did. Sensing this was more than a missing person, Detective Brokini requested that homicide detective Craig Grogan join the case. When the two asked Scott to come in and take his polygraph, Scott told them that his father Lee, who'd arrived that day from San Diego, told him not to under any circumstances. Was that because a polygraph is was that because a polygraph is more often like uh, damning evidence against someone than it is to actually like exonerate them? Inadmissible in court, it doesn't really mean anything except for that you can kind of be like, okay, you're not really involved in this. Go ahead, we can look for other people. And it or, also, oh, sorry. It also kind of allows for for them to see what to, to gauge how a person lies and when they lie, and to how to notice when they're lying. Like even a polygraph's not just necessarily for the little scratchy part on the paper. Usually, the person that is "quote unquote" trained in polygraph can actually see a lie coming. Like you know what I'm saying? Remember that show "Lie to Me" with a uh, short, oh yeah, yeah, English dude, T Tom Tim Roth. Tim Roth, yeah, 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 yeah. How he kind of could read facial cues and things like that, and see with like 99 percent efficacy. That was a Efficacy. really good, terrible show. Yeah. No, it really was. But anyway, okay. they, they, it also helps police gauge 
to find out when a person is lying and what to look for. Phone records would later show that Scott also spoke to his mother, who told him to deny, deny, deny. Around 6.30 that evening, Scott called Brocaney and asked if they were going to bring cadaver dogs to the park to search for Lacey. Obviously shocked, Brocaney told him no, they were looking for an alive Lacey, not her body. Uh, yeah, no, we're looking for a live person at this point, so we're gonna leave the cadaver dogs at home. Like, here's the thing, though. Do you think his idea was, I'm gonna make myself look like the most suspicious person because it'd be too obvious for them to actually believe that I'm the one that did it? No, absolutely not. Huh. He's just dumb. It's like something Nancy Grace said, which I normally don't listen to Nancy Grace, but someone was like, oh, you know, she could have been this and that could have happened to her. And Nancy Grace was like, yeah, well, she could have been abducted by aliens, but statistically her husband did it. Husband is always responsible. 99% of the cases. Always 99% is not. I mean, it's rare that someone's going to go missing in what a half hour time frame and her husband wasn't involved. Hmm. And then he wants the cadaver dogs. And then, yeah, he starts acting like he's not grieving. He's not concerned. He wants cadaver dogs. He wants grief counselors. Brocaney was like, I wasn't going to bring the cadaver dogs until you just said that. Right. Yeah, now we are, bud. Yeah. On December 26th, the search was in full force at East La Loma Park, and volunteers had set up a search headquarters at the Red Lion Inn. The reward for any information grew from $25,000 to $125,000 with donations from family and the Carol Sund Memorial Reward Foundation, which was founded after Carrie Stainer murdered Carol Sund, her daughter, and a family friend in Yosemite National Park, which is a case that we covered in episode 48. A tracking dog team went over to the Peterson home to collect items of Lacey's to search off of. While writing down notes, Scott rushed over and gave the handler something to put under the paper so it wouldn't leave any indents on the table. That's a Boca do Lobo bonsai wood table, you asshole! He also asked for a receipt of the items they took for the dogs to track off of. The handler told detectives that on dozens of missing person cases they've worked, no one has ever asked for a receipt of the items that might help find the person they're tracking for. What kind of receipt would that be? Like, we took this, we took that. Yeah, it's like a search warrant receipt, basically, where they have to list everything they took out of your home. It's basically like, we took her sunglasses and her shirt. So you can get it back someday. And then you rip it off, and you're like, I guess you need this back? I don't know. I mean, you can't apply for stuff back that you've been that's been taken by the police. Police took one of, do you remember, well, the police took one of a persons we used to work with, BB gun, when he was like... 19 and then they sent him a later letter later saying that he can come pick up his bb gun like five years later yeah it's a little different when i mean because with a search warrant yeah they're taking stuff that you might want back but like they're tracking to find your missing wife and you want to make sure you get those yeah, sunglasses back different. yeah this is a little different officers found multiple people who reported seeing a pregnant woman walking a dog at east la loma the morning of the 24th something that a private investigator later hired by the petersons would point out incessantly saying modesto pd never followed up on the leads they did and discovered that none of the 11 witnesses timelines matched up they all seemed to put her in different parts of the park at the same time. The family PI claimed that all of the sightings created a perfectly timed circle around the park, which is not true. I mean, we we all know that witnesses are extremely inconsistent. You ask five people who supposedly saw the same thing, you'll get five different answers. Is that the case of this? Do we actually think she was at the park? or I don't think she was at the park, no. And they also found later that, one, they all put her in different clothing, and obviously there she was not the only pregnant woman in the area that walked a dog. And two, he harassed all of them and threatened them to give 
the response he wanted to help Scott. So he was a really good PI then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he actually is not allowed to ever be a PI ever again. Oh, good. Because he got a bunch of felonies for it. Good. So. Not only that, I know when I walk Bruce every night, like, I see a bunch of the same people, but I couldn't tell you ever, like, which night I saw them. So it would be like, oh, yeah, I saw the pregnant lady with the dog, but really they saw her the day before. Two days ago, yeah. And in their like, brain it was just like. Like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. So this must be what they're talking about. So I'll fill in the blank. Yeah. Could also be why people remember different clothing and stuff like that because they just seen her regularly. Yeah. And another thing with Lacey, too, is that a couple weeks before this, she had gone to the OB and they basically told her to stop exercising because she got tired really quickly. And, I mean, Mackenzie was a relatively large dog, so the chance of her getting hurt and pulled over by the dog were pretty high. So she didn't walk the dog. Yes, when you're that far in gestation, they usually recommend you be on, you know, rest and things like that. Yeah. But Mackenzie was a good doggo. Oh, yeah, of course. 100%. They're all good doggos. Detectives headed over to Berkeley Marina to talk to employees and nail down Scott's alibi. Eyebrows were raised again when employees reported that it absolutely did not rain at any point on the 24th. This was important because Scott had explained he had washed his clothes immediately upon his arrival at home the 24th because they were wet from the rain and salt water. At the same time, detectives were at the marina. The family was holding a press conference. Being that Lacey disappeared on Christmas Eve, a very slow time for news, the media had latched onto the story immediately. Within the first day, news stations from Modesto and surrounding areas were reporting everything they could on Lacey's disappearance. Like, what, what did they have to report? She was missing. Who she I mean, was. Yeah, they were just from. trying to get her picture out. Talk to okay. a neighbor. So are we going to discuss how the 24-hour news cycle has made it really hard for convictions to actually be held up? Like, maybe not in this case, but when you're you're judged in the court of popular opinion before anything has actually come to fruition, isn't that like a danger to the prosecution's case? The prosecution or the defense? No, the prosecution's case. I mean, if the entire country finds you guilty, then no, the prosecution's going to yeah, but then, but then you, you. you literally can, even if you do get found guilty, you can be, you can say, I was judged by Mis- this mistrial. before anything. There's a mistrial because these jury members already knew about this or these jury members or. That's why, I mean, that's why you do fortois. That's why you sit down with juries and make them go through so many questionnaires and guarantee that they're going to give you a fair trial no matter what they know. Okay. Could so I- they went through hundreds of people. I was going to say, it probably makes it harder to get a fair jury. That's for damn sure. I think it took them six weeks to find a 16-panel jury. Yeah, that literally hadn't grabbed onto some opinion that, uh, let's say, a Nancy Grace type put out. Yeah. I mean, in this case, sure, they definitely made Scott look bad, but Scott made himself look bad. Okay. I think it could definitely increase the chances of an appeal, though, like... It gives grounds for just some stupid appeal right off the base of it, right? Yeah, like like, like as soon as like you get found guilty, they're going to appeal it, right? Yeah, but for you this can't. Very reason. Which happens anyways, but... Yeah, yeah you're going to appeal either way cause you, because it is a death penalty, but you can't just go, oh, well, the news talked about me, so I should win my appeal. But I, I feel like in a case like this, it could be damaging to a fair trial. I don't think TMZ, TMZ should have released that Kobe was dead before his wife found out. I mean, there's plenty of things fucked up, but they definitely, I mean, they have to make sure that you're given a fair trial. So they go through the Vaudois, they moved, didn't try it in Modesto, they tried it in San Mateo. Okay. There's plenty of things they did to get around him being able to say, well, I was on the news a bunch, so the jury didn't like me. 
During the press conference, he became irritated at the questions reporters were asking him and stormed out of the room. It would be around a month before he went in front of cameras again. Scott's lack of media appearances hurt the public's opinion of him greatly. He claimed that the focus needed to be on Lacey, not on him, and that's why he refused to speak to reporters. But we all know that in missing persons cases, the cameras are your best friend if you truly want the person to be found. The news is your absolute best chance at getting the person's name and face out to the world so they can be found. And also, uh, exonerate yourself a little bit if you're the husband and everyone's looking at you and you, you're out there not acting like a sketchy weirdo, it's good. Even if you go, I think it's actually worse if you go out there and act all, um, like, concerned husband and then you come up as the number one suspect and ultimately get tried for it oh because now everyone feels like you're a faker yeah it, it it turns it turns people way harder than if people are like hey that guy's sketchy that guy's already sketchy right yeah. like if they think he did it off the bat yeah that evening brokini and grogan secured a search warrant for the peterson home and scott's warehouse when they arrived, they saw him through a window, sitting at his kitchen table, reading the paper as if it was any other day. Scott let them in, and they informed him of the search warrant, to which he replied they didn't need one, they could search whatever they wanted. Taking out a consent to search form, they asked Scott to sign it, thinking he would because he literally just told them he would. Instead, he told them he needed to talk to his lawyer before he signed anything. Brokini and Grogan said, okay, never mind, here's your copy of the search warrant. Get the fuck out of the house because we're searching it right now. Good. Yeah. I like that. They're like, what? What? No, here. Okay, never mind. Fuck you. Yeah, here. We don't need you to sign this. We already have a warrant for it. So I just told you that. Yeah. They were just testing the waters, mainly trying to get him to sign the consent to search because they figured that he was going to lawyer up because he's obviously trying to pretend like he's not hiding something when he's really obviously hiding something. That evening, while hordes of media vans were outside the Peterson home, neighbors came running out of their home screaming it had been burglarized while they were on vacation. This part of the case gets a little messy. From what I could find, the neighbors left the morning of the 24th and returned the evening of the 26th. Those who believe the robbers were involved in Lacey's disappearance say that the home was broken into the morning of the 24th. The residents left around 10.30 a.m., so the robbers would have to broken in the home in broad daylight and carry out a very heavy safe. I saw one report that was never really mentioned in any other source that someone saw Lacey confront the men while they were carrying items out of the house. The men that actually committed the robbery were arrested and interviewed by police. According to them, it was the very early hours, around 3 a.m. on the 26th, that they broke in. You'd have to be, like, so dumbed, I think, to break into a house a couple streets down from someone who just got murdered. Or someone who's missing. Media, vans, all that shit had to be out there at the 26th. And yet, well, maybe not so much at 3 a.m., but still, there's a lot of attention on the area to be burglarizing it. There was one news reporter from Modesto that was like, oh, there's no way they could have done that. I got there at 4 a.m., and I was there all day, but he was the only one there at 4 a.m., so... Oh, he did it. Well, no, th I mean, the people that were arrested did it, and oh. they were there from 3 to 4 a.m., and they left immediately as they saw news crews pulling up. News crews, quick, guys, gotta ditch the shoes. So I definitely think that it happened on the 26th, like the people that actually committed the crime said. Yeah. There was also... I saw another... This is coming from Reddit, so I don't know, but there was... Something about the men confessing to something in jail, and something about Lacey in jail, but I don't know what they said, and it was never confirmed. So, by December 27th, the third day of Lacey being missing, the story had hit national headlines. The search was still on at East La Loma, and dive teams were searching any water near the park. 
Brokini arrives back at the Peterson home to conduct their official search and run tracking dogs through the area. The first thing he notices is that the umbrellas that were in the bed of Scott's truck were now leaned against a fence in the backyard, and the tarp was covering a lawnmower. The boat cover that had also been in the bed was haphazardly thrown into a shed and had a leaf blower that was leaking gasoline placed on top of it, soaking it completely. From watching Scott with his cars and kitchen table, Brokini knew that he was not one to be careless with his possessions. If any sort of scent or evidence was on the boat cover, it had been thoroughly destroyed. On purpose. More than likely. One of the tracking dogs brought into the home, named Twist, alerted on the tarp that had covered the umbrellas. Outside, Lacey's scent was followed to the end of the driveway, indicating she had left the home in a vehicle. And Twist was a good doggo, too. At the warehouse, Brokini and Grogan noticed some items had been moved from the position they were in during the first visit on the 24th. Grogan asked the tracking dog to be run through the warehouse, so the handler agreed to start the dog at a nearby intersection to see if it followed Lacey's scent to the warehouse. Instead, the dog followed the scent directly south, the opposite direction of the warehouse, and the same path Scott would have driven to the marina. When the dog was started at the warehouse, it followed the same path. Scott's two-day fishing license was found and oddly showed it had been purchased on December 20th and filled out for the 23rd and 24th at the store. Scott had stuck by his story that it was too cold to golf and he made the last-minute decision to go fishing instead on the morning of the 24th. That golfing thing that he said really fucked him up because otherwise he could have just said, oh, I had this trip planned, so I set it up. I, I did it that way, but it, it really doesn't line up now. When a computer forensics investigator went through Scott's office laptop, they found multiple porn bookmarks for videos that included bondage, rape fantasies, and bestiality. In his search history, they discovered that on December 8th, he looked up a topical map for the Brooks Island area of the Berkeley Marina, the exact location he'd taken his boat to on the spur-of-the-moment fishing trip on the 24th. The biggest piece of evidence in the entire case was found in Scott's office warehouse. Detectives noticed a piece of plywood that had four distinct round stains or impressions left from concrete. It appeared that some sort of round container had been placed down, then had concrete poured into it, and some had spilled over the sides on each, leaving a circular stain on the wood. A single concrete boat anchor was found in the warehouse, despite there being four of the distinct stains. When asked about it, Scott did admit to making the anchor for the boat, as the man he'd purchased it from wanted to keep the anchor. When he asked what he'd done with the rest of the over 50-pound bag of concrete, Scott said he'd poured it into a muddy patch next to his driveway. This was later tested and found to be a different material than the concrete used to make the anchor. So he made some evidence anchors is what we're getting at here, right? Basically. Some people argue that it's not, like, super distinct that he made four and he obviously only made one, but, I mean, you guys saw the picture. Yeah. The second piece of evidence that would later seal the case was also found inside the boat. A pair of pliers were discovered with dark brown or black strands of hair clamped between them. What would he have needed the pliers for? My assumption is that when he pushed her over, her hair got tangled in something and he had to use the pliers to get it untangled. Ah, that's fucking brutal. Another tracking dog was taken to the Berkeley Marina on the 28th and hit on Lacey's scent going down the boat dock where Scott would have launched his boat the 24th. The dog continued into the water until the handler called him back. Scott's defense would later claim that the dog was given an item that had both Scott and Lacey's son on it, so it could have been following either or. Once again, this wasn't 100% a proven fact. Lacey's family held another press conference that day, tearfully pleading for Lacey's return and announcing the reward was now $500,000. So, if that dog was tracking Lacey's scent, he wouldn't have, he would have gone into the warehouse if it had been confused with Scott. Instead, it just went from where the truck was directly to the marina. So, I don't think, I, don't, I honestly don't think that she would ever fully made it into the warehouse. No, I don't think so. And from what 
I think it was Grogan said he was a fertilizer dealer. So the warehouse was like stacked with fertilizer. So if she had been alive in there, there's really nowhere she could have maneuvered as an eight-month pregnant woman. Scott was not a part of the Broach's press conference. The same day, a sexual assault counselor calls the Modesto PD's tip line, claiming that a victim she worked with had been abducted and raped by two men and two women in a brown van. They performed a satanic ritual and told the victim to watch the news for a Christmas Day death. Detectives looked into the tip and were able to find the van and its occupants, who agreed to have the van searched. They were cleared of any involvement, but oddly never came to the police department to collect the van. It was later auctioned off and bought by Scott's defense attorney, but was never mentioned again. On December 31st, Scott officially hires defense attorney Kirk McAllister. He is told multiple times throughout the investigation that he is playing a quote-unquote deadly game with police, but Scott seems to take this as a compliment more than a warning and tells Lee and Jackie Peterson about it. That's the name of the book, right? Yes. That evening, a candlelight vigil is held for Lacey at East La Loma Park and brings over a thousand people together. A stage is set up, and both the Rocha and Peterson family members take turns speaking, thanking volunteers for their efforts in the search so far, and begging for Lacey's safe return. The only family member that doesn't speak or join the others on stage is Scott Peterson. He is seen and photographed multiple times throughout the night, smiling and joking around with other attendees. He's showing them his new Land Rover. That's not really like a totally damning thing. I mean, people use different things to cope with grief and shit like that. So him joking around may be his only outlet for his pain. But no. with that 24-hour news cycle you're talking about. Yeah. Did this, so did this actually become a, a piece of evidence because Not in his trial, no. No, it did not no. become a piece of evidence. The pictures are just taken. The biggest thing to remember with this case is that, yes... Everyone does grieve differently, but it's human nature to have a somewhat distinct pattern of grief. So if your wife goes missing, you're going to be sad. You're going to cry every once in a while. You're probably not going to be laughing and joking around with small children at her candlelight vigil when her entire family is also crying and begging for her to come back, but you refuse to get in front of a camera and say, hey, can you guys help me find my wife? Like, there's still a very... It's not set in stone, but there is somewhat of a timeline that people follow in their grieving, and he did none of that. There was no grief at any point. He didn't grieve in any particular way because he was not upset ever All right, well, by any sense. of this. So. so is that it for this week? Yeah. So we'll we're going to pick pause? up next week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscrime. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list uh, to send us ideas for an episode you'd like to hear or to get a free sticker from our merch store by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout and getting it shipped out to you 100% for free. So this week, have a good week. Take a spur-of-the-moment fishing trip, maybe. Don't use it as a cover for murder. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Yeah, Katie, what's wrong with that? You guys talk shit to each other nonstop. Yeah, and but now you, should hype, to... you should hype your friends sometime. Make them feel themselves, Katie. You would know this if you were a good person.